Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI numbers reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon Samzell, Chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. As fall sets in, a decided turn in the air for the new British government's designs for the economy, for Elon Musk's designs on Twitter, and most decidedly for Mr. Putin's designs on Ukraine. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We had our fair share of about faces this week with the Bank of England's quick intervention to save the gilt market, as explained by former MPC member Kristen Forbes of MIT. It seems that they are worried that because of the big market moves, there could be some margin calls, um, some pressures for forced selling that could cause the gilt market to freeze up. And British Prime Minister Liz Truss giving up at least part of her economic program. It was becoming a distraction, so that's why we immediately changed that policy, and that's the kind of government we are. But as ugly as the situation was in UK markets, it was nothing compared with the setbacks for Russian forces in eastern and southern Ukraine, with President Putin's efforts to, quote, annex territory that his forces didn't even control, which Admiral John Kirby of the NSC looks at as an indication that Mr. Putin just may be coming to understand how difficult his situation really is. The annexation announcements, as well as his announcement of partial mobilization, certainly shows the degree to which Mr. Putin knows how much he's struggling inside Ukraine. And OPEC Plus weighed in with its own changes, cutting production caps by 2 million barrels a day, or about 7%, putting even more pressure on Europe and the rest of a world already worried about energy. Well, we were disappointed uh, that uh, OPEC uh, made this decision. Uh, as the president mentioned, we think it's unnecessary if you look at the global environment where supply continues to be the predominant challenge. Then there's Elon Musk. He offered $44 billion for Twitter back in April, then decided to renege, got sued, and on the eve of his deposition, returned to his original offer. Even though it looks like he's going to be way overpaying. 
in many ways, this is almost the most expected outcome of all, which is settling on the eve of trial just before deposition of the main players, Elon Musk himself. He doesn't want to be deposed. He has you know, probably some embarrassing text messages and conflicting statements, and all of that would make for a very unpleasant deposition for him. But after all the back and forth this week, U.S. jobs numbers actually came in surprisingly on course, adding 263,000 new jobs, just slightly more than expected, with workers paid 5% more than they were last year, and a reduction in the unemployment rate to 3.5%. Here to walk us through this week and what got us here are Aaron Brown, portfolio manager at PIMCO, and Chris Aylman, chief investment officer at Calster. So, Chris, let me start with you. Uh, boy, uh, given what we're seeing right now, are we looking at a long, cold winter, would you say? Unfortunately, David, I think we are. Um, I think the Fed, you know, with these employment numbers, the Fed knows that they have to continue this pace of aggressive tightening, and they're going to do so uh, the next meeting and the next meeting after that. And I think, which the street is pricing in, but I think after that, they're going to have to keep it up. And that's going to be into the winter, and it's going to be a tough time. So what do you say, Erin? Uh, is it going to be a rough winter? I think it is going to be a rough winter. I think that the bands of uncertainty are quite wide for next year. The Fed is tightening into an economic slowdown, and we haven't even seen the real impact of that slowdown yet. We're just starting to see signs of a gradual slowing, but likely we'll continue to see that into next year. And we think that we're heading into a recession into early 2023. And at that same point, just given the level of inflation, the Federal Reserve is now really challenged to be able to arrest that inflation, get it under control, despite what happens to the economy. So I think that really poses a challenge for the Fed, and we'll likely see something that's fairly unprecedented, which is continued financial conditions tightening and Fed tightening into an economic slowdown, even if it really leads to a harder landing than what the Fed's anticipating. And Aaron, I'd push back a little bit. I actually think we're in a recession right now. It's not a very strong one, um, and it doesn't hurt a lot, obviously, with employment growing. You know, but we did have a negative GDP in the second quarter. Third quarter is mild. To me, anything below 1% in the USA feels like a recession. But so what you're saying is you think it's going to be a really, we'll actually have a good traditional hard negative recession with uh, rising unemployment which is exactly what uh, Powell has said. I mean, that's his forecast. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, my our view at PIMCO is that we'll likely see unemployment rise to about 5% by the end of 2023. And so right now we're sort of seeing some of those early signs, but we really haven't seen the full brunt of financial condition tightening yet. That's more to come. So we are going to continue to see a slowdown. And I think that's really going to hit in the first quarter of next year and into the second quarter of 2023. Uh, Chris, given where we are with inflation right now, all the concerns about inflation, if we are heading into a recession or even are already in one, no matter how long it is or how short it is, what are the tools the Fed has to use? Because typically you turn to the Fed and say, okay, start cutting interest rates. doesn't look like they're going to do that in all likelihood. No, they're going to raise interest rates. They only have one tool. They have, well, they have their mouth. They can jawbone the market, which is what they're doing. They have the dot plot, which is going to indicate or direct the market. But they're really the only tool they have is short-term interest rates and the Fed funds rate. Uh, and that's what they're using aggressively. I mean, good grief, 75 basis points. Those are big bounces. You know through history, you've got to go way back before you have that aggressive tightening of monetary policy. And they have to shrink the balance sheet. So uh, as they move through that, you know, he's already said he's going to hurt employment. 
uh, yet we have stronger numbers. I, I think the numbers, there's something strange in the numbers this week, just like last month, but we'll see how that balances out. Uh, we're going to have a, a tougher time. And, you know, I think the question is going to be about corporate earnings. You've got CPI next week, and then you got the banks starting to roll out with their earnings. Okay, we're going to pick up exactly that question. Where do you hide in this environment? Chris Aylman and Aaron Brown will be staying with us. We're going to ask for them, for them for some investment advice. We could use it, that's for sure. That's next on Wall Street Week here on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The facts on unemployment seem clear enough, or at least as clear as that changing social definition ever can be. The situation is getting a little better, but not much. The government announced today that the overall unemployment rate last month was 6.9%. The official unemployment rate has been stuck within a tenth of 7% for six months. And that scarcely represents the massive reduction of unemployment that at least some folks thought they heard Jimmy Carter promise a year ago. That was Louis Reichheiser on Wall Street Week back in October of 1977 when the unemployment rate was twice what it is today. And we were trying to get it down rather than focusing on inflation, whatever that ends up meaning for employment. And if that seems like a galaxy far, far away, well, maybe that's no accident. The top movie th this week back in 1977 was Star Wars. And the top song on the charts was, you got it, the Star Wars theme. Still with us are Aaron Brown of PIMCO and Chris Aylman of Calster. So, Aaron, let me turn to you and pick up on where we were talking just now with Chris, but where you hide, if you're really an asset allocator, you said cash is one alternative. Are there things, though, that involve at least some risk that you go to, and how much of it depends on what you think the recovery is going to look like whenever it comes? So I'm going to flip that sort of question and answer the, the second question first, which is, unlike prior recessions that we've seen in very recent history, so think of the global financial crisis or even the pandemic of 2020, I don't think this is going to be a V-shaped recovery. I think this is going to be more of a prolonged 
prolonged, you know, sort of stalling of the economy and more of an L-shaped recovery than what we've seen in the past. And the reason for that is because inflation is high and is likely to persist at high levels, you're not going to come in and see the Fed start cutting, you know, as the unemployment rises like we've seen in the past. Instead, because the the Fed is, you know, moved from a dual mandate Fed to a single mandate Fed, really just focus on getting the inflation rate down, you'll likely see, you won't see the sort of immediate relief that we've seen in recent history. And so that does change a little bit the landscape of how you think about investing. You know, historically, as we start to get closer to what we expect the bottom level of the S&P 500 to be, we start to, you know, scale risk back up, start to move back into equity investments to catch that recovery to the upside. Side. And this time around, I think you have to be a little bit more patient. So instead, what we're really looking at is fixed income investments that we think are going to be able to sort of stand at the test of time, be able to sort of hide out in as safe haven assets. So beyond just looking at cash, we're looking at high quality investment grade corporates. We're looking at municipalities, uh, municipal bonds, you know, particularly for those who are can take advantage of the tax advantages, tax advantage bonds, um, we think offer good value there at a sort of after-tax yield of 6.5%. You know, in addition, we also like um, some uh, mortgage agency bonds and structured credit bonds as well. And then sort of high-quality equities that are defensive equities, high free cash flow, dividend growth, strong balance sheets. We also think do, do well in this environment. But, you know, it is a sort of challenging time for investors where you have to skew more towards fixed income in order to have of stability of return as opposed to looking for a quick snapback in equities. But you know, I'd pose the question to Chris because I know he also manages a diversified uh, portfolio. Chris, where are you looking at? What type of sort of diversification that you, are you looking at in, in order to sort of hide out over the next couple of quarters? Well, Aaron, you know, the, I've got the benefit of being able to go into private securities. So uh, I've got a good sized real estate portfolio. We have a large private equity portfolio. Sure, it's going to have write downs, but its value is a bit more stable than we see in the public markets. Um, we have a cash position, but the problem is for us, cash is not outperforming inflation. So the old adage, cash is trash, is still true. Um, we do like uh, private credit. You were kind of hitting on that, that, you know, variable rate debt, uh, short-term debt with high quality. And I think collateral is going to be key um, because, as you said, we're going to have a long, rough winter. Uh, so you don't want to be loaning money to everybody. You have to do care about governance. Um, but it is tough in this environment. I mean, you know, if the economy is slowing and inflation is still strong, uh, that's stagflation. And you look back in the 70s, I got to say, uh, I love that suit that, that Lou had. I don't know where you get that back <laughs> in the 70s, but I'm stunned by it. But, it, you know, you look back in that time period, returns in 77 were terrible. There were hard places. to. It was just uh, a very tough time to hide anywhere. Yeah, so I'm curious, though, exactly about when you go into fixed income. Do you think the price is attractive now in some fixed income, Chris? Well, I agree with Aaron. I'm going to go short. I'm not going to go long fixed income and take uh, duration exposure. Short-term credits, I mean, you can hold a credit for two to three years, and then it's money good. And as she said, you're going to uh, put it in a spread product, so you pick up a couple of basis points. Uh, by being in a corporate, you're okay. 
There's still a lot of money, David, uh, international money that wants to come into this market, uh, non-U.S. rather, uh, that wants to come into the market. You saw it in the this week where it suddenly comes rushing in. So I would give the advice to the average investors, you've got to slowly average cost in. You're not going to be able to call the bottom. Uh, as much as Aaron and I think there's a support number, it may not hit that at all. And the market's going to just bounce along. And, and in Aaron's example of an L, an L goes on forever. It's just <laughs> flat. I hope we don't have to live in a flat recession for years and years. But I think this is going to be a tough market to find any kind of growth opportunities. Uh, so you want a protection and a return of your money rather than a return on your money. Aaron, one other big development this week was OPEC Plus and what they did. It certainly seemed to stun the White House at the time. What does that tell us about geopolitical risk generally and specifically energy? And it looks like oil prices are going to stay up there for a while. I think that's one of the things that the market's really mispricing. Right now, if you look at the forward curve for oil, the risk is really in the sort of very short term where the market expects that oil is going to be elevated for the short term, but it really hasn't extrapolated or extended that expectation out the next one to two years. And I think that there's real value in sort of the back end of the curve for oil because I think that these oil challenges are going to persist much longer than what the market's anticipating. One of the reasons for that is, you know, first we saw out of oil uh, OPEC plus this week, their intention to keep prices elevated. But I think the other challenge is, is that we really haven't invested here in the U.S. or on a global basis on energy infrastructure. So that capacity is really constrained over the next couple of years, even if we wanted to expand capacity or if oil producers wanted to expand capacity, they don't have the ability to do so in the immediate term. And that's going to keep oil prices elevated. So the risk for oil, then the risk for the energy complex broadly, isn't just this winter, but it's next winter as well. And, and next winter's challenges are going to be even more difficult, particularly on the shores of Europe, um, than what we're experiencing this winter. And so that's what I think the challenge is and you know why I think this is something that's going to persist much longer than what the market's currently priced in. Thank you so much to Aaron Brown and Chris Ailman. Coming up, we'll wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Every week, we turn to Larry Summers of Harvard, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week, to help us sum up the major events of the week. And once again, we welcome back Larry Summers. So, Larry, I think we should start with the jobs numbers out on Friday in the United States. I mean, some say not too hot, not too cold. Uh, some people say, isn't this good? At least it's not getting worse. I guess my real question to you is, I may not be getting worse, but is there a danger just in the inflation remaining where it is? We have 5% year-over-year increase in wages. I think these numbers were about what we expected, and the sensible judgment was that we've got an inflation problem. Core inflation figures look artificially good. They're better than median inflation, and yet core inflation ran at a 7% rate last month, and that was more than for the quarter, and the quarter was more than for the half year, and the half year was more than for the whole year. So we're not in a controlled place with respect uh, to inflation. And there wasn't really anything in this report 
to suggest that we were coming into uh, a controlled place. Uh, the monthly wage number was relatively favorable, but it was pretty clearly distorted by the fact that you had a lot more workers coming in in leisure and hospitality, and those are low-wage workers. The workers where wages are most flexible are going up more rapidly. So I don't think this is a number that changed uh, the picture that we've got an economy that is too strong to be an economy where inflation is going down, but that is maintaining its uh, robustness. But I think we are headed for a collision of some kind or other, and we've just got to manage that collision carefully. And I think the sooner we start uh, managing for a slow, managing for some slowdown, the better we're going to do. I think Chairman Powell was way late to come to that recognition, but he now has that recognition, and he should be supported in that. So, what do you think, Chair Powell, and the Federal Reserve will make of these numbers? How will it affect what they do in early November? I don't think these numbers are going to change what uh, the Fed uh, does. You know, you never know what's going to happen, and certainly there's risk of some kind of financially traumatic event, but I think the chances of something that is large enough to divert the Fed are really uh, quite low. So I'd be expecting that uh, the market, which is anticipating 75 basis points in November and is anticipating 50 more in uh, December, that would correspond to my best guess at uh, this moment as well. And I think that kind of thing is going to be appropriate if we achieve disinflation. Larry, there's another uh, strain of discussion I've seen certainly this week. In fact, there was even some uh, Fed staff work at the New York Fed suggesting that we better be careful because, in fact, the, the rate that we may need in order to get down to 2% may be so high it will cause financial instability. There is a really a safety and soundness issue. What do you make of that? Is it possible the Fed will have to choose between financial stability on the one hand and getting inflation down on the other? First. I think that should be the occasion for some soul searching. If we have an economy where we think there's going to be substantial financial breakage because the Fed lifts the Fed funds rate to 4.5%, then we have an inadequately supervised financial system and an insufficiently active financial regulator. And so if anyone believes that, along with whatever monetary policy implication they draw, they better tell us how we think, how they think we ought to be repairing the regulation of the financial uh, system. David, my sense is that you can never rule out uh, these kinds of uh, risks, but the Fed has more than one instrument. It has instruments for specific guaranteed lending. We've seen that used a number of times. And each time, we're surprised by how much the economy retains its robustness. In retrospect, we cut interest rates too much and kept them too low when we were supporting the financial system after COVID. In retrospect, we kept interest rates too low and blew up a bubble when we were supporting the economy with low interest rates 
after Asia and LTCM. In retrospect, we were surprised, amazed, by how rapidly the economy grew when the Fed uh, did what was necessary after the 1987 stock market crash. So we need to regulate right to preserve financial stability. We need to have a very strong firefighting force in order to respond if and when financial accidents uh, happen. Larry, it's always so helpful to have you on each week. And I'm delighted to say Larry Summers will be staying with us as we bring in Professor Brad DeLong, a professor of economics from UC Berkeley, on his new book, Slouching Toward Utopia. That's an economic history of the 20th century. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, has stayed with us because we're going to bring in now Professor of Economics from UC Berkeley. He's Brad DeLong, the author of a new book, Slouching Toward Utopia, an economic history of the 20th century. So, Professor, welcome for joining us. It's really good to have you here. I've read this fascinating and really sort of protean book. It's really quite a book. Uh, Let's set it up first because it's a history of the 20th century, but you don't necessarily define the 20th century as from 1900 to 2000. You start in 1870 and you end up in 2010. Why? Well, the big thing that happens happens in 1870, right? Before 1870, the world's poor, and there's no prospect for the world being anything other than poor. After 1870, every single generation, humanity's technical competence doubles, and then doubles again in the following generation. And such an enormous pace of technological advance raises the possibility for the first time of a world in which we can bake a sufficiently large economic pie for everyone to have enough. And that was nothing that humanity had ever seen before. One of the remarkable things, Brad, that you highlight is that it really wasn't very different to live in the United Kingdom in the 19th century than it had been to live in the ancient world. Uh, 2,000 years before. 
Say something about the acceleration of growth that you see is happening in the 20th century. Well, you know, I mean, it was British economist John Stuart Mill, right? He was writing in 1871 about how all the Industrial Revolution had done was it had created a somewhat larger middle class and it had allowed manufacturers and the rich to earn greater fortunes, but that the overwhelming mass of humanity was still confined to the same life of drudgery and imprisonment um, than they had been before, that they had been in before, um, and before all the way back into deep time. It was very clear by 1900 that things had changed. You know, John Maynard Keynes, writing in 1919, looks back and says, starting in 1870, we entered economic El Dorado, and that now our chief task after World War I was figuring out why we tried to blow it up and try to get desperately back to what was good was going on after 1870. Fortunately, we eventually did, and so things rolled through up until our day. Professor DeLong, give us a sense of what happened in 1870 that brought all this about. There were some three driving forces in your book. Yeah, well, well, you know, everyone has an idea about just what it is that's made us as a civilization so wealthy that makes our economy so productive. And, you know, different people have different things, and they all go back, um, some of them back even to, say, the year 1070, when it turns out that the law applies to a German emperor standing in the snow outside of the castle, that a law isn't his tool, but instead it that the law applies to everybody. Um, but you get three things that fall into place in 1870 that set technological progress into a much higher gear than ever before. And they are the industrial research lab, so that you can rationalize and routinize the discovery and development of technology. And then the corporation as we know it, um, which rationalizes the development and deployment of technology. You know, and combine that with the globalized economy, with the telegraph and the I railroad and the ironhold ocean going steamship, and all of a sudden the incentives to deploy technology worldwide for production are so overwhelming and people turn their minds to how to do this that everything explodes in a way it never had before. Brad, um, much of the academic discussion of your book has centered on this idea of a pivot point in 1870. Yeah. But I want to ask about a different judgment you make, which is that there was this major era and that the major era ended in uh, 2010. I would have thought that the world was growing, it was becoming more integrated with uh, technology, there were important political struggles. Um, that was the stuff of history through the 20th century, much better in the second half of the century than in the first half of uh, the century. The and the Cold War was a very different war than World War I or World War II. It was cold. But I would have thought that was a continuing process with substantial challenges. And yet you see us as now being in a quite different era. What's different about the era we're in than the era you wrote the history of, other than more of the kind of progress and change that you saw as happening every generation? Um, well, I'm pleased you disagree here, and I'm very pleased you disagree and are a starry-eyed optimist here about our future. 
Um, because look, I've been losing arguments in person with you for 42 years, even when I think I'm right afterwards. And here I'm genuinely uncertain, and I actually very much hope you are um, really right this time. My thinking was, I've been listening to our friend John Fernald about how the underlying pace of technological progress has more or less halved since 2005 compared to what we were used to beforehand, save in those years from 1975 to 1990 when technology was crawling toward a more energy efficient and environmentally friendly um, configuration rather than focusing on labor saving. You know, but after 2000 and after 2000, we seem to have a substantial loss of social and economic knowledge about how to run things. You know, things about financial regulation that I thought were in trend, that were known in the bones, um, turned out to have been completely forgotten in 2008. Um, things about the proper tools for macroeconomic policy that I thought were, in, were, were ingrained in the bone were also forgotten after 2010. And I remember you and I whimpering in 2012 that no, for more expansionary fiscal policy was not then um, a thing that ran any risks whatsoever. So as I say, it's a remarkable book. It's slouching toward utopia, an economic history of the 20th century. Thank you so much for bringing us. We can only really touch upon it today. I urge yep. everybody to read it. It's really worth the effort. Thank you so much. That's Professor Brad DeLong of UC Berkeley. And of course, to our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. The fine line between being steady and being stubborn. We've all admired those leaders through the years who have stuck to their guns when times got tough. British leaders like Winston Churchill in the darkest days of World War II. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And Churchill's successor, Margaret Thatcher, who was known for sticking to her guns no matter what. He wanted the Council of Ministers to be the Senate. No, yeah. no, yeah. no. And American leaders, like President Reagan at the Brandenburg Gate, demanding that the Soviet Union tear down the Berlin Wall when it seemed that that was the farthest thing from Mr. Gorbachev's mind. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Those were the times when the steadfast were ultimately proven right by history. What happens when bold proclamations don't hold up quite as well, such as George Herbert Walker Bush's insistence he would never ever raise taxes? And they'll push again and I'll say to them, read my lips. And then there are those bold pronouncements that have yet to be proven out one way or the other, like President Xi's insistence that his zero COVID policy is the right one for his country. If you just look at the COVID zero protocols, it requires all people returning from abroad to have uh, 10 days of quarantine. Or President Putin insisting that he will ultimately still prevail in Ukraine. If he thinks he's losing and may lose his, his you know, office and even life, 
then he could become completely unpredictable. But this week, this week we saw something a bit different. Big, bold pronouncements being completely reversed not long after they were made. A big one was, of course, Elon Musk's change of mind again on whether he'd pony up $44 billion for Twitter. We're now hearing that Elon Musk and Twitter, of course, that resolution really said to be sticking on the contingency of getting that debt financing. And that is going to be the key clause that we're focused on going forward. But at least Mr. Musk took a few months for his change of heart. Over in Great Britain, we saw a new government lay out a new budget that included big tax cuts, starting with the top tax bracket. We love the tax cutting, but not at this time. This is just the, absolutely the wrong time to do this. Bringing immediate and violent reaction in the markets. She's trying to get the markets behind her. Those two latter factors, probably significantly more difficult. And the Bank of England stepping in for the rescue. So suddenly, the Bank of England finds itself in the ECB situation. So, Prime Minister Truss's newly minted Chancellor of the Exchequer had to admit publicly that they had been wrong, clearly and dramatically wrong, at least on those top tax rates. And it came only days after he and Prime Minister Truss had gone so big and so bold. I think it was a distraction, uh, and I think, and I think, I think uh, it, was, it was the wrong thing to do. One can hardly fault a government for listening to its people, even if the listening might have come better before the deciding. But whatever the right answer, the one thing for certain is that, at least in this respect, Ms. Truss is no Margaret Thatcher. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. <laughs> The ladies not for turning. <laughs> that does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.